0: Aho, Rajanaka. Douglas here. Hope that finds you well. We were just listening to the priest sing the song of Kali at a beautiful temple called Pichavaleamon. I hope you had a lovely Thanksgiving. I took this Thanksgiving week off from our sessions, but not from all the work that I love to do because I'm a lucky guy. I get to read and to learn every day, or at least I try. And I did get to spend some lovely time with friends and family, You know, I'm very fond of citing the English romantic poet Blake's comment that gratitude is heaven itself. I'm not going to contest either the sentiment or the power of that insight, not even a little. But for all the gratitude I feel for the privilege of good company, yours very much a part of that experience, I look as much at the world and must also confess there is a lot to lament and mourn. To deplore and repine. If candor is our ally, not just a demand, then it too is a privilege, perhaps not a remedy, but candor is an appeal to our better nature, to our angels. To feel even a little whole requires we embrace our contradictions, we find ways to revel in the blessing of having human experience itself when not all of our experiences or what we wish they were, what we can acknowledge we need not savor because we can appreciate what will come to make the difference is that we're going to need to make meaning. More about that in a moment. I just wanted to say thank you from the outset, not from obligation, though that wouldn't be uncalled for, but from the heart where I hope we spend as much time together as possible, no matter what else we're doing. We are, I think, at a moment in history, and particularly in American culture, such as it is, that has approached an inflection point. As far as I can tell, the idea of an inflection point has been borrowed from differential calculus, even differential geometry. What it means to apply the mathematical definition is that it's a point on some smooth plane curve at which the curvature changes sign. In the case of the graph of a function, an inflection point is the place where the function changes from being concave, that's downward, to convex, that's upward, or vice versa. Now I think what's happened is we've reapplied this idea, and what we mean now is that things that were going much as we would have expected that they would, this is the smooth, plane part, are now in the midst of notable, significant change. The curve has moved. And if we were to graph that change, we'd have to say that those changes are significant. And we might further suggest that we think that there's no going back to what was normal or the before times. Instead, there's going to have to be another graphing of ourselves onto the world from the inflection point. We all know there are no take-backs, no do-overs, because karma's like that. Some inflection points seem to take us all at once, like the way a hurricane can hit. we only for a brief time we have to get our bearings to see it coming. Other times, we look at those inflection points in hindsight, and we say, well, we saw it coming, or we should have seen it coming. I remember thinking this on 9-11. When, given the state of our particular political leadership, I felt close to certain that America was about to embark, or should I say blunder, into a trajectory we would come to regret to see as filled with unforced terrors, and that would cause as well another inflection point from which there could only be a very different future, not recovery or relief, just something different. Of course, there was so much there we might have seen coming both before and after the events of that particular day. But an important thing we learn each time from some event or some process unfolding or some turn of the cards is that we as individuals are caught up, caught up in a maelstrom of social and political whirlwinds. However we might as individuals respond, we know that there are forces greater than ourselves propelling us into a future that this is collective making. We are, simply put, swept up by our histories, by our societies. It was the important sociologist Emil Durkheim who made the observation that individuals comprise society, but that society is at least as real, in fact, more determining, even more real, than individual choice. However abstract it may sound to say that society predisposes our individual identities and empowerments, I think we've been living through Durkheim's observation. This is what a worldwide pandemic did to us, because we did not decide it for ourselves. And Much the same seems true of climate change, and in America, that 2016 election that reconfigured our political norms and has brought us today to the brink of yet another catastrophe of our own collective making. It's not hyperbole to suggest that the norms and features of our free society, such as it is, a democratic society with ideals and values, that all these things are on the line in 2024. We may yet be in for another brave new world, consequences for all, no matter where we stand or what we choose to do as individuals. Now, this is not to say we're helpless or mere victims of the tides of history. And Lord knows, history has chronicled many such inflection points and upheavals before us. In ancient India, they began not with inflection points as such, but rather with what we might call the ordinary state of crisis and the need to recognize one's own inflection. Where are we on the curve of our own selves? This matter is retold in the great brahadaranyaka Upanishad, where the sagely, but not the sage, Yajnavalkya, declares to his wives, Maitreyi and Katyayani, that it is time to make a settlement with them, because he's about to set off to the forest. What he means is that he's retiring in some way from the world to address his own personal inflection point, A time in life when moving forward means leaving behind at least as much. Now, to their credit, Maitreyi and Katyayani will have none of it. They insist that he explain himself, and at the very least, take them with him. He does both, of course. The discourse that turns, then, is to the pursuit of something more subtle and sublime as life's deeper purpose. Just why Yudhnyavokya thinks that this requires a retirement from everyday life is not nearly as clear, except to say that the world as such is regarded, at least implicitly here, as a positive impediment to such noble endeavor as meaning. To find life's highest goals, the text more than implicitly suggests we must remove ourselves from the entrammelments of a public world, and even one's role in the world, reaching that inflection point, must take a different turn. Yrgna has apparently done this bit for the gods and society. He's looking for quieter pastors. Enough is enough, and apparently not having shrunk from his responsibilities, he's out of here. Now, this story dates from about 660 before the Christian era, thereabouts and seems more than likely to predate the legend of Prince Siddhartha Gautama, that's the Shakyamuni Buddha, who could not postpone his date with the quest for higher purpose, his inflection point. Because as we know, he famously left the family business and his own child Rahula to come to the riverside, to cut his topknot, to leave behind the trappings of the world and disappear into the forest for some five years before re-emerging as that fully awakened Buddha. His return to the world as such signals his compassion for the misery that afflicts the rest of us, or the rather interesting metaphysical suggestion that for all of the other worlds that exist, there is none in which the possibilities of the sublime are not absent somehow, somehow from when the context of a mortal life, Our pal Yajnavalkya's story involves no such eventuality of return. He isn't coming back to save us from ourselves. But I think we can fairly say that what he seeks is his retirement from the world because he's already achieved what he wants from the world. For Yajnavalkya, worldliness has done its job and now it's time for meaning. This is the content of his discourse and the query that his wives have with him about what all the hubbub's about. Now, for Shakyamuni, the sublime awakening provides relief from the world. It's a kind of final immunization. I don't want to call him anesthetized, but suffering just no longer applies to his awakened state. That's what they tell us. Yajna doesn't tell us what happens when we find out that we are mortal selves experiencing the mortal coil from an immortal source. We are immortal selves, he insists. This mortal coil issue then has to be seen in light of this most vital fact. So immortality provides some kind of consolation because the experience of its facticity, that it's something real, is meant to relieve us of the usual reduction, that we are just transient entropic consciousness that will repeat itself until we become wholly receptive and we experience this ultimate information. The self, as it were, is in essence immortal. This is the Upanishad. In both cases, Buddha and the Upanishad, there's a liberation theory at work, one that frees us from something and simultaneously frees us to other options about living in the world, not only without all the mess, but in some far, far better state of affairs. And frankly, and this will come as no surprise to you, I find these liberation claims to be somewhere between fantasy and falsity or at best a modest consolation because from my bound point of view, there's still plenty about bondage that I think is the very point of life itself. Maybe our freedom is that to which we bind ourselves. I mean, bind ourselves freely. Interestingly, pre-Buddhist, like pre-Hindu worlds, that's Vedic worlds and perhaps the goddess worlds of deep South India before they become wholly assimilated, as do all the rest. Before the bondage and liberation model, these worlds aren't so interested in ultimate solutions to our mortal situation, but rather our human process. The Vedic world's solution is a recycled experience of realities that operate at multiple levels of seen and unseen reality. It's a too infrequently stated fact that the Vedic remedy is, in fact, for the Hindus and the Buddhists, the very definition of the problem, since the Vedic folks maintain that death and re-death are, in fact, a blessing. To put it in more familiar, contrary terms, Buddhists and Hindus, of course, tell us death and rebirth are the problem. They're samsara, and that they mean to solve. The Vedic proposal seems simpler. It's that a good life here is followed by a good life elsewhere, followed by a successful recursion. A good life involves family and friends, longevity, prosperity, and of course cows, because cows are pretty much the measure of all good things, even for the lactose intolerant. It is a life of thanksgiving. This is called the Vaidika life, made of the Veda solution, which includes within its scope a management project for everyday life, that the Veda calls rita, rita, the potentiality for better or more. But this wasn't enough for post-Vedic India, which explains in part why the term rita is no longer current as Vedic gives way to Sanskrit. Rita is sometimes later conflated with dharma, which is its proper historical evolute, But the difference between the two is noteworthy. You see, with rita, the idea is that our potential involves an emergence into a plausible betterment. We can make this world a far, far better place where everybody has more goodness, including more cows, and then goes on to death where the next time and the next time are also potentially better. Once we get to Buddhist and Hindu solutions later on, we get a samsara versus liberation worldview. This world's samsara may be deemed more pleasant or a better opportunity for liberation, but it's not the same as liberation, it's still samsara, and as fragrances go, samsara is at best an illusion, a mask covering far more unpleasant sensations. Thus, Rita, which downloads, it's getting better all the time, or not supposed to get worse, is in the Vedic world no longer currency, really, in a bondage to liberation model. We're not trying to get better. We're trying to get out. And this is why Rita, Vedic, and dharma, Hindu, even in the Buddhist sense, that which teaches us how to be liberated from sara, this is, in effect, a tipping point. An inflection. There is a transition to Dharma. If Rita was an emergent potential for ever more goodness, Dharma means something quite else. It's a great lesson, actually, whether or not we transition to liberation. Dharma replaces Rita as an ideal because this world, well, it just can't really get better if our trajectory is to be liberated from its ultimate problematics. And so dharma comes to mean a resolution, a process by which we hold fast and secure our position so that there can be justice and principle, law, righteousness. Sometimes dharma means goodness or even religion because dharma is an attempt to hold on because life's regular trajectories invariably bring us to coming apart that center cannot hold. And so our natural course of events must become dharma to hold fast. Our job, first job in dharma, is to push back, not to let the world overtake us. Now, there is another project, and that is to find the rare, wondrous fact of order Dharma then becomes our most exquisite possibility, the rarest occasion in the midst of turmoil. Now, depending on the context, the implication is that Dharma either works to set things to rights because their natural tendency is otherwise, or Dharma means that there is a natural order and putting oneself in alignment with that creates our true nature, literally, sattva, our beingness. The beingness of a thing, its sattva, is its ultimate destiny. Hmm. Now, of course, ancient India is holding out not for dharma, not as finality, but for moksha, liberation, or for nirvana, the extinction of samsara. And that provides an ultimate end game, not just an alignment with the natural process, or holding fast in the storm. So whether we take the Vedic view that life here is a deep-seated principle of rita, inviting a potential for creating more propitious outcomes, or the later view that dharma proffers a mechanism of management, what we learn in either case is that there's work to do just to keep life together, much less advance our prospects. Now one of the features even of a bondage and liberation yoga is that we can see liberation more as a future, a hope rather than an expectancy. Liberation can be an ambition, even of another lifetime, while dharma cannot be assigned to a future that is not also current and imperative. Liberation can be regarded as an option, a wish, even a dream. There's no harm in that. But dharma implies no such luxury because it's a resilience rather than a reverie. Its prospects are imminent and incumbent. It's not utopic. Dharma is present. But another matter really worth noticing here is that neither ritta, for all the ways in which it suggests an emergent potential, a betterment, or dharma in the sense of order alignment or order procurement, In both cases, ritta and dharma don't mean meaning. Now we can assign meaning to another term, that would be artha, but let's not labor that word for now. The important point is that meaning involves value. It usually suggests to us a sense of well-being and some accompaniment of value. With meaning, we associate forms of personal growth or evolution that involve significance and substance. Meaning explains and implicates worth. There is import in which context and purpose and effect bring us to a sense of the point, the productive purpose of a situation or an event. That's its meaning. When something is meaningful, then, we're inclined to assign importance, merit, regard. But we also know that meaning can be as much a sense of valuation, of consequence, of substance. So meaning doesn't always have to feel good so much as it has to come home. It puts us in a better position to address a circumstance that has impact, whether or not we can do much about that situation. So there is benefit and merit in meaning and an unambiguous sense of its value. Meaning has stature. It has bearing and quality. It has pith and point. The nuance to observe here is that Dharma will allow us to postpone the objective of liberation. To quote our truest or highest purpose, Dharma does not promise meaning. Dharma is the way in which we practice goodness or establish what's right or even virtuous. Dharma is sometimes custom we observe for the sake of maintaining worthwhile norms or conduct. It's perhaps even the old-fashioned sense of duty. That's a definition that I particularly like, precisely because duty doesn't necessarily suggest that we like it or, for that matter, that we don't. Dharma insists that we not be morally neutral, but it doesn't demand that we be particularly pleased or uplifted or inspired either by the act or the outcome. Dharma is more just do it than it is doing it feeling good or feeling uplifted. Sometimes the word Dharma only means something like a particular or essential quality, a property, a signifier. Dharma signifies what's firm or needs to be made firm. It's a hedge against disarray, confusion, tumult, being muddled and snarled when what we need is more arrangement and agreement. But importantly, when Dharma does its job, it's about getting on with it, and at best making appropriate choices rather than deriving value or merit from those decisions, those actions, those understandings or commitments. So dharma is a protection, but it is not disposed to reward us with meaning. Rather, dharma is something like a precondition or a situation that provides a context or a possibility for meaning-making. Rita is still there. Rita is that emergent possibility of more. Meaning is more than dharma. So why go on about this distinction, though I might suggest the nuance here is what we're after. It's an interesting matter of our human condition. But I wanted to talk about it today because I think we're living both in a time of significant inflection and simultaneously a time of liminality. See, inflections are all around us. They're saturating our lives post-COVID with new circumstances and our work lives in our personal lives, changes with the pandemic's effect on us physically, emotionally, psychologically. There are inflections all around us in war and in climate, in very much in American politics where we have taken so much for granted, like a common set of hopes or expectations or ideals. And now, as some people say, it's just conspiracy. It's outright nonsense. Absurdity becomes our ordinary state of affairs. Now we can't seem to agree on much at all. We're more partisan, more tribal, likely feeling as if what's changed has brought folks to newer places that are more ironically entrenched, less pliant, less receptive. So much feels under threat, feels menacing and foreboding. We've moved from ordinary risk and everyday peril to impedance and intimidation especially worse for those who have historically suffered from forces of marginalization, from the disempowered. But the protections of privilege, however they've been socially dispensed and historically assigned, will not relieve us. The inflection points feel hotter, steeper, more dangerous and precarious for all of us. Now, at the same time we're experiencing more inflection, I think we're also feeling the paradox of liminality, Luminality means threshold. It means an in-betweenness. It means we're not quite there yet. So luminality means we're in a particular circumstance or a situation It feels more like a holding pattern than anything conclusive. It's as if the inflection, which is real change, is at the same time transitional, unpredictive, subject to capriciousness, feeling so mercurial, shifting. As if daily or even more urgently, while we await and watch, we are justifiably restless, agitated, even skittish. We're in a liminal condition. The volatility of the world has been calling out for more certainty, less wavering. But that's also brought more reliance on political strongmen and fundamentalism, simplistic affirmations and the search for something to hold on to, As inflection and liminality defines our situation. So we're witnessing the loss of democracy in Hungary, the recent election in Argentina, need I go on? The real possibility that America will turn to the fantasy of I alone can fix it, do that again, and thus the reliable end of any normalcy. Though, ironically, again, it's normalcy that's being sought. Answers that will address our anxieties. And obtain determination over more unwanted inflection and liminality. We are, and I say this without hyperbola, nor to be alarmist, less than a year away from an election that could eliminate the American experiment, at least as we've known it in the post World War II era. I'm not trying to scare you. I don't think I'm engaging in hyperbola. There's nothing prophetic implied here because what I'm saying is something that anyone with even a once-in-the-week drop-in on the news will have noticed. Now, if you tell me you refuse to read any of the news of the world outside of your immediate life, I'm going to be hard. Shame on you. Citizens of the world need to care. We need to participate. We need to be informed and learn how to sort out our information and sources can't dismiss the world as if we're all leaving for the forest with Yajnavalkya, or crossing the river like the privileged Prince Siddhartha. I think we know how hard it is to pay attention, especially when it's all so painful and confusing. But the only way in which anything possibly good can happen, or much less get better, is if good people do pay attention, if we act together, if we do some dharma, if we hold fast to the notion that rita might be real, even as the world rages. Now, part of our task is normalcy. It's acting as if, something we've talked about before. The rest of the task is engagement. It's turning dharma into swadharma, as the Gita puts it. That is, making the big picture that attempts sanity and decency each and every person's task. But here, in our paradox of inflection, where change is convexing and concaving all around us, we are as well liminal, because so much is impending, inconclusive, and complexity is volatile. There's an important teaching here we can call from our spiritualities. It goes like this. Dharma is not the promise of meaning. It's the call to the yoke. It is to enjoin literally oneself in a process of making good on what's good and right. It's about trying to stay calm enough in the storm to continue to participate in our own particular, peculiar swadharmas, the things at home and at work and in the voting booth and wherever we are called to commit and to contain ourselves. And as for meaning, well, that may have to be as liminal as it is inflectional. In other words, meaning may have to be dealt with as a rather distinct matter, not unimportant or immaterial, certainly not unnecessary or less significant, but instead as recognizably different than Dharma. Our quest for meaning may remain undecided, meaning itself more undecided, less lucid than Dharma. Meaning will feel unmistakable, but only when it does. Even when dharma must be made unmistakable when we don't fancy it. We're going to have to be mightily more clear about what good we are called to do than we are definite about our experience of its worth, its value, our personal growth or well-being. Allow me to make this a bit more jersey, if you'll permit me. A lot of the stuff we're going through just sucks. We're appalled by the grisly, the scandal, the shocking, even execrable behaviors we see around us. We are scared and grieving, and we want to turn away. We want to ignore, deny, or retreat. We can tell ourselves we know what to think and how we feel about it. We might very well have considered opinions, claim that we're indifferent to how others regard our opinions, But none of this is the same as meaning-making, and none of this absolves us from doing dharma. That's the strange lesson. So here's the good news. Dharma doesn't need expectations any more than it requires meaning. Meaning formulates with expectations, often with ideals. However, we may need to modify or adjust our views. Dharma releases you from meaning, albeit temporarily and not forever, because we need meaning. We're going to have to make some sooner or later. But the beauty, even the goodness of Dharma, is that it asks from us enough patience and forbearance to get on with the needful, to stay in the tempest when we would rather just turn away. And as for meaning... That will come if we can defer it, table it, but not forsake it. Meaning will wait for us, just as we need to learn how to wait for meaning. This is crucial to meaning's manifestation, to its presence in our lives. Meaning can take time, when Dharma demands and reminds us that there is no time. Dharma will suffice when meaning seems distant, so hard to fathom as to feel impossible or forever when what we want is now. You might sense growth or value in increments, or some more immediate than remote, and good for you, good for all of us. But what Dharma and meaning share, it shares in the breath, in the living power of patience and recursion. So breathe. Breathe again. Dharma is a kindness, and meaning is being kind to yourself. Dharma is your own, but it is for all of us. And this tells us that dharma and meaning are best shared, and that they each come with mutuality and support when we decide to share them. So dharma and meaning can converge, but they're not identical They share a locale, the geography of body and mind, of emotion and heart, because real meaning can at times just let dharma be enough. Show up for the dharma. That's Krishna's imperative to Arjuna. And allow growth to follow from dharma. Let it come as it does. We're in the midst of too much. There are worlds and worlds of ordeals to face, As responsible humans. It can feel terrifying, disorienting, all too real. If for now there is no real sense of purpose in sight, it may be that some things, including our sufferings, are what they are, not existing necessarily to create opportunities of meaning, but because they're part of our human experience. Dharma tells us that meaning often struggles to reveal itself, but that not all experiences will reveal more meaning, at least not more meaning than, we got through this, this is what really happened. We've experienced that, and it wasn't anything like growth or value. Rather, we did what we could. We did what we thought we should, and that will have to be enough. Meaning is sometimes that the enough that is is what we must receive. Sometimes inflections are anything but easy, and liminalities are terribly unsettling. But what we can do is not impose or demand meaning when we're really not feeling it, when what we know is that life seems more to get on with it, more dharma. We can make meaning into a kind of fiction, as if all our travel has to be valued growth or opportunity. And when we make meaning into more of a burden than a patient cause for reflection and assimilation, we turn meaning into an obligation. But meaning is grace. And meaning graces us because it's not a guarantee or an obligation. Rather, it's a feature of our soul's longing for more, for ample opportunity, for value in a world where we know Dharma is not always plentitude or good fortune. So in these very troubling times, give yourself a break from meaning if that too seems hard, if it seems like too much expectation. Let dharma hold you, even if it acts as a placeholder. Dharma is no substitute for meaning, but it is an interim when inflected and liminal worlds make you feel like meaninglessness is the more real truth. No. meaningless becomes harrowingly too true when we don't let dharma do its job. And dharma's job is to bring what's right to the front of the line, lead the way when meaning might be lagging or for the time being even lost. Let dharma make do for meaning and push meaningless in its usual cohort. Meaninglessness is cohort is profound loss it's despair, it's angst, it's dread, and we're going to take all of those out of contention because meaning's complement is dharma and meaning's antithesis is its absence, not its rejection. Can I say that again? Meaning's complement is dharma, but meaning's antithesis is not meaninglessness. It is its absence, not its rejection. So if meaning seems absent, well, it might well be. But it's not gone forever. It's not to be replaced by some callow emptiness. Cynicism and nihilism, that won't do. That is what we can learn from the relationship between Dharma, which provides us something like duty and attention, what we got to do, and meaning, which must be given time to bake, to be made with its cohort, for meaning's cohort is patience, it's reflection, it's good company and gratitude. So if these times seem to invite more frustration and futility than fruitful or productive creativity, then dharma invites us not to be idle, not to dawdle, When it comes to needs getting done, like caring and paying attention, if we don't feel better for our enterprising alertness or our diligent charge, that's okay. That's meaning taking its time. This can be perplexing. It can be vexing and worrisome. But give yourself some room here. The space between Dharma and meaning is where we give permission for our humanity to find itself with more self-regard. It's a place to stand in yoga, in an integrity of engagement and commitment. Meaning will come to the Dharma party because you have invited it, and you've disinvited cynical distrust, rancor, or contempt. Dharma demands response, but meaning longs for compassion and the heart's desire to feel, even in this mortal coil, this brief, unpredictive-as-it-is-life, that there is great value that sees life as a blessing and gratitude as its grandest gift. Gratitude might well be our most sovereign virtue, or maybe we can make it that. Maybe that's what Thanksgiving's purpose is, to show us a way forward because gratitude has been here from the start. It's how we got here. We came from love. So maybe the most important thing we can do when inflection and liminality takes hold of us in the midst of a life seemingly driven by upheaval is to liberate ourselves from the expectation of meaning, to let dharma do its job to be patient and kind with ourselves. Let meaning arrive at the party when it's ready, when you're ready. Be patient and kind to yourself in the meantime. Look for help and look for support in your friends and family. Look for help in the teachings that let you hold on to the fact that life is a blessing, that meaning will come because it is the heart's truest yearning. And let Dharma hold you fast even if a meaning seems distant and far. Thanksgiving, it's gratitude time. That means we can be grateful that meaning will wait for us if we continue to do our dharma. Let there be arita, an emergent possibility of more and better, no matter where the inflection and the luminality seems to lead us we can lead the way take care yogis it's always good to talk to you and thanks so very much for your good company on this sunday evening thanksgiving 2023 take care we'll talk soon